0: Life stories of trauma, loss, awakenings, and epiphanies, beginning with one mom's journal entries recorded in real time of a catastrophic diving accident, rendering her teenage son paralyzed from the neck down and the courageous fight to save his life. Told through unedited text and journal entries and inspiring guest interviews, blink of an eye will take you on a powerful journey of advocacy and hope and an unvarnished look at the true nature of our relationships and interconnectedness in the face of an event that changes everything.
1: Season 2, Episode 11, Seeking Answers. Hello, everyone. I hope you are doing well today. Oh, it is good to be back with you. If you're not doing so well today, I want to assure you that life does get better. It does. I want you to believe that. Can you take that in? Let's pause a moment as we get started just to take that in. Life. And others and God will take care of us. What we put out in the universe, as the expression goes, can manifest in our lives if we believe it. You just have to know what it is you need for your highest and best good at that time. Believe it and send it out. And if you're not sure, that's okay. That's why we have each other and God to help us seek so we can work on getting clear. We can be particularly unsure when we are in stress or crisis. Or we can be sure what we want, but unsure of what we need or how to get there. That is where I was on this day in the blink-of-an-eye story. I was seeking answers to get clear, and I had to rely on some advocacy skills. I've been inspired by many of you who have taken the time to write me about what you have learned about advocacy from the blink-of-an-eye story. Today's episode is going to be a close-up look at one aspect of relational advocacy, seeking answers, and what it sounded like on August 21st, 2015, with one of the Atlantic Hair Doctors and me. You see, August 21st was one of the days I did not have an Archer blog entry, as there was so much going on on both the inside and the outside of the ICU. Another one of those times was August 24th to 26th. That's coming up. Things were getting worse, but I was getting used to the ICU and ways to navigate. All I wanted was quality decision-making. I wanted it with the Atlantic Care Medical Team, where Archer's best interests we're not sacrificed because we were not the doctors and were not asking the right questions or because the doctors were not believing in what was possible. I knew then when advocating for anything, it includes working with other stakeholders to get clear about what each sees as possible and what the choices really are. Relational advocacy. It's as much about knowing what you want as it is knowing what others want and need too, And paying as much attention to how you get there. And that usually starts with engagement. And it includes discussions, sometimes hard discussions, and how the other person or side or party can meet your needs or not, and how you can meet theirs or not, which in the case of the ICU, it was the Semps and Archer and the medical staff, and how to clarify how to talk about what you need. And we needed to clarify the needs of which medical intervention was needed and which medical procedure was available and whether or not we would give informed consent. But we needed a process that allowed us to talk about that so we could give informed consent or not. And with the growing tension as Archer was not getting better and he was getting worse, as the situation was growing more complicated by the day, it was a process for sure. Don't ever forget that while the doctors know the medicine, you know the human person's needs and life. So bringing people together with a focus on how to even have that conversation which usually means getting to know each other a little bit and then asking questions and seeking answers, is the process roadmap. And it was not necessarily easy, as you know, since I was learning that doctors were not used to meeting with patient families like this or all together as a team. So this episode of the story is going to look and sound a little different. I'm going to step back a couple days in the story to August 21st, 2015. And you will hear the context and then a live, real-life-in-real-time audio recording from back in 2015. August 21st was a Friday the recording is a hospital bedside conversation between the head of cardiac at atlantic care dr mohammed hani elnahal and me you know it felt like a little miracle that i found this audio recording all these years later it was actually a little surprise as i was poring over the hundreds of pages of text from just these few days of time to stitch together a full story and the audio was referenced in a simple four-word text i sent to dewey and to billy please listen to this and dewey had texted me back saying they did not get anything from me to listen to and i responded I'll send it in an email to Dad. And that's when I referenced quote consultation cardiac doctor Hanny Elnahal eight twenty one fifteen. Since I only have transcripts of texts, I would have never had it. But emails, they stay around forever if they're not deleted. I've already introduced you to Dr. Hall in the last episode, but on this day in the story, he graciously agreed to meet with me to talk things through about pacemaker surgery for Archer, as I had questions about if Archer should even have the surgery at all. We were in Archer's hospital room, which you might recognize by the sounds. I hope you learn from the audio recording, as I did when I listened again. You might have to strain a little bit to hear it, but for me, it was as if the conversation were yesterday, as I remembered every moment of it and every sound of it. If nothing else for you, it has some good information about pacemakers and how the heart works. Thank you, Dr. Elna Hall. So here we go. Episode 11, Seeking Answers. 11, it's my lucky number. Maybe that's why I just discovered this audio. Okay, settle in, settle your spirit, anticipate something meaningful for your life's journey or for someone you love whom you might need to advocate for let's go back to august 2015 atlantic care hospital trauma icu life can change in the blink of an eye august 21 A look back. It was early morning as I crossed over the Cape May Bridge, headed back up the Garden State Parkway to meet with Archer's doctors. My mind was full, and I was in strategizing mode, juggling what felt like ten balls at the same time. Stay focused, Louise. Paula had texted me, He slept pretty much through the night, except for when they cleaned and repositioned him around 2. At 3.30, he had another little scare, where his blood pressure and heart rate dropped very low for a few seconds, like what happened earlier in the day, Mama. He's back on temporary pacemaker. They weren't sure again if it was caused by little seizures, and they may do a seizure test at some time this morning to see if there was seizure activity. Shortly after, his vitals were all back and good and have remained that way. As I drove, I thought about how much I hated that there were events in the night when one of the kids was on duty. It's too much to ask of a young person to be in charge and responsible like that. It was just too much. But Paula and Pete were both taking it on. I hoped they would be okay. My mind wandered to both of them and their relationships and their lives. I have such good kids. I was driving past the marshlands and noticed how the reeds caught the morning sunlight. So beautiful on the parkway. It was almost like flashes, like glints off the water with the strong, bright, early morning sun. Mile marker 11. I've been thinking about how Billy and I were wrestling with whether we should get a second or third medical opinion, but it was hard because of Care's policy on not releasing documents until we were discharged. We had people responding to my family and friends' updates. I had a friend in Baltimore texting us information about our family connections to other experts around the country. Like a Dr. Jim McCarthy, the Director of Pediatric Orthopedics at Cincinnati Children's. And Dr. Peter Stern they told me about the head of their spinal department and contacts at Shriners hospital in Philly who could review records. I was told for free if we could just get them. Another friend in Missouri had texted me about a Dr. Daniel Rue at Washington university and two other spine doctors starting a spine clinic at Columbia university. I wanted to look up each one of these people. We couldn't even get to spinal rehab until we got Archer strong enough with good cardiac and pulmonary care. Well, that was how I felt about it. Stay focused, Louise. It was clear to me Archer needed a strong heart to be free of all the lung tubes before any meaningful rehabilitation could occur but I was worried that might not be for a while. But maybe I was wrong. I didn't know. We just had to get past the cardiac and lung hurdles. I didn't know what to do with all these contacts. And so I had forwarded them to Paula to store for me somewhere. I was a little haunted. Thank God for Paula. I was a little haunted. But she wasn't was in the greatest shape haunted. either, I was beginning to notice, Okay. And I wasn't sure she was keeping track. Stay focused, Louise. Mile marker 18. Get answers today. All those people, yeah, they're going to need an Archer's medical records, but just get answers. I was loath to begin anything adversarial with Atlantic care at that moment. It appeared it would require a real fuss to obtain and send out any medical records. I was also aware of this sort of low level adversarial current between us and Atlantic Care. And I prayed none of his records would be hidden or deleted. I know that sounds crazy, but I had heard of such things happening my old litigation days. I didn't know if it was true or not, but I didn't want that kind of a tangle. No way, not now. All I wanted were answers. And there were answers right in front of us and we just have to figure out what was behind us later, if we needed to. I was not interested in suing anyone. I just wanted Archer to be treated well and for us to get on with our lives. I didn't like the Atlanticare policy of not releasing documents to us, but maybe it was just a policy for a reason I didn't understand. I don't know. Stay focused, Louise. It bothered me that I couldn't get records, but I didn't want to wait and ask for them later when I could hopefully get them right away. I'd asked my sister to inquire generally and they told her the same thing but that another doctor could request them and they'd be sent, but that the patient had to provide the copying service and arrange for the copies to be made and direct where the doctor was located and so forth and so on. We just had to get out of Atlantic care. As I drove, my mind was very focused on what I knew I could do. Call medical experts I knew from home and connect them to the surgeons at Atlantic Care so they could talk on Archer's behalf informally, and then inform me of our options. Mile marker 25. I needed to prepare for the doctor meetings that morning. God, where at the time gone. It was a big morning. They were answering my requests. I could feel the energy in my body that I have before large facilitations. Yeah, I wanted to be prepared. Stay focused, Louise. Seek answers. It had just been a few hours since I had left late last night. But in that time, with Paula's text that morning that Archer's heart had stopped again in the night, I knew we could not continue that way. But I didn't know if his delayed heart was a sign of something else or if it was just part of spinal cord injury. But the doctors had confirmed that heart attacks are not part of a typical spinal cord injury. Was a pacemaker really the only course Archer had? Mile marker 28. At least we had some time to decide, as I knew by now that no surgeries happen on the weekend. I guess unless it's life or death. It was Friday. I began making mental notes of all the questions I had. I had so many for our meetings coming up. Oh God, help me be discerning. Mile marker 32, almost there. What don't I know to even ask a question about? That's what scared me. I like to think things through. Look at consequences. Minimize surprises. I like to know what's out there. I wanna meet danger. It bothered me that I didn't know as much about medicine as I needed. I knew nothing about hearts and lungs. I entered Archer's room. I'd love Paula. She did look haggard. We had both thought it would be a quiet night when I left around 1.30 a.m. I'm sorry it was not. She must have been scared, all by herself. It was so scary when the alarms went off and Archer's heart would stop. Archer looked weak, but he knew I had entered. Hello, darling. "'as I kissed him on his cheek. "'The pulmonologist came in and talked with me "'about Archer's chest tubes. "'We were working on trying to wean Archer's body "'from the chest tubes, sealing one off at a time. "'They had sealed one last evening, "'but it seemed it was too soon, "'premature as his body was not able to sustain his vitals.' The doctor had said we would watch the situation closely and try again tonight. I had many questions for him about Archer's lungs and this process. His answers told me we were not out of the woods by a long shot. I rolled around the awareness in my mind that we were all struggling to get clear on our next steps. But there was one thing I was clear about. We needed a lot of expertise and we needed a lot of experience and we needed a coordinated effort. And if the expertise were not there, we could import it. I was losing confidence that the knowledge of how to treat Archer was all in that building and it felt a little disjointed to me. I just wanted someone who understood the entire situation. Heck, I would just take one doctor, someone I could trust. When Dr. Mohammed Hani Elinal entered Archer's room, it was the meeting I had most wanted to have. He was the head of cardiology and had kindly agreed to meet with me to talk things through further. All I wanted was to make the best decision to get Archer out of Atlantic care and on with his life. I also told him I wanted him to know our son. I told him who Archer Sempt was. A six-foot-two, strong athlete, one of five children the fourth, with a sister and three brothers, who were all here at Atlanticare over the course of this time and very involved, that he was loved a lot, that he was very loving, that he was a beautiful portrait artist and a great designer, a straight A student, and he was going to have a life after this. We just had to get him out of ICU and I felt a shift in our interaction. He began to ask me how the accident happened. No one since I had been at Atlantic Care, not one person, not one doctor, had asked me how the accident happened. I asked Dr. Elnahal if I could record on my phone, as I also took notes in my medical notebook. He graciously agreed. Here is the rest of our conversation, recorded live on that day, August 21st, back in 2015, Day 17.
2: Oh, yeah, okay. and that was in a swimming pool or in the ocean? In the
1: ocean. He's very familiar with the ocean. He was working. Went out at a be- at the beach club and went out to take a dip to cool off. He said, works in the kitchen.
2: Where do you live in uh, Maryland? Baltimore. Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in shock trauma. Uh, you, you work there? Or? No, I've done work for them. I've done work for yeah. My son is a... Uh, resident in radiation oncology there at Hopkins. Uh-huh. I trained at um, Franklin Square Hospital. Oh, you did? Before Hopkins yeah. bought it? In 80, 85. 80 we used 85. to
1: represent Franklin Square. So, tell, uh, tell me. Tell I'm me a cardiologist, me Dr. A Dr. A. Yeah.
2: El, El, El Nahal. Mohammed El Nahal. Like alcohol, but not quite. El Nahal. <laughs> So here's the situation, I mean they uh, of course overnight they see pauses.
1: Long pauses in yeah.
2: his heart beating. And what happens, the heart gets its innervation through two systems, the sympathetic and parasympathetic. And the parasympathetic innervation is through the vagus nerve. And that uh, controls contractility, heart rate, uh, basically has a depressive function on all these activities. So, if you have a vagal uh, surge the heart contractility gets less, the heart rate gets less, okay? The other uh, innervation is the sympathetic. And the sympathetic innervation does the opposite, it gives more power to contraction, it gives more heart rate. So it's like banging and yang. One Mm-hmm. So if I'm going a fight, my sympathetic... So the
1: dopamine
2: is the latter? Dopamine yeah. is sympathetic. and we you give it intravenously to stimulate the heart, and it's too slow. But all these external uh, chemicals are not on the long run healthy. You can't live on dopamine, you can't give it except by intravenous. So. But at any rate, with condition of transsection of the cord, the vagal nerve arises from the brainstem stem and comes out of the skull early. It comes out of out of the skull. How of the skull? Early before the spinal canal. And it goes because of before the injury? Before, no. so before the spinal canal, the vagus nerve comes out and moves in the neck tissues down to the heart and the that rest of the orbit. So when you have an injury like that, the vagus nerve is not involved. It's still there working. The sympathetic stimulation comes out from the spinal cord so when you have transaction of the spinal cord up here like all the other nerves that are not functioning the sympathetic innervation to the heart is not functioning so now you have unopposed vagal stimulation
1: so so one aspect of the vagal stimulation that goes outside the spinal column is working, is working.
2: And, uh, and the one that goes is through is the, the column, column that got transected with the rest of the innervation. So you and that would
1: be called the parasympathetic? The, the
2: parasympathetic is the vagus. The sympathetic is the one that is not working. Oh, okay, so the parasympathetic is, is the vagus working. outside. Yeah. Okay. So the parasympathetic innervation is there all day, but it gets augmented during night so it, while he's what happens at night augmented what does that mean means increased becomes more powerful becomes more dominant so now that it's not it's unopposed by the sympathetic inner right it doesn't have the balance we'll have a the tendency end. to slow and pause and have all these short pauses why, why does it
1: get augmented in the night
2: it's the nature of our sleep cycle and our brain is conditioned to do that during sleep we are all like rest, dreaming,
1: depressed. all those things.
2: When we fight and box and are sympathetic to go over everything, the vagal nerve gets depressed. So you look at him all day. Probably he'll have minimal or any slowing or pauses during the night. He'll have pauses, and unfortunately, this is going to be a permanent situation.
1: Well, uh, why? Why do you say that? Unfortunately, it'll be a permanent situation unless
2: things recover if the sympathetic nerve recovers with it, then they'll go back to school, normal. So it depends on the prognosis of the transection itself. But For the time being, he will continue to have this threat of pauses and slow heart rate. Now, overnight, when he has those pauses, they use the external pacer, which is on the skin, and that gives electric stimulation to the heart in there's pauses, so he, they pace the heart. Yes. Now this is painful, and you give electricity to the chest.
1: So every time that goes off, that pacer...
2: Uh, yes, but there's one good aspect of all this is that he doesn't feel pain here. So, so his body's experiencing it even though his mind or doesn't his feel the pain. Okay. I mean, it, it's not, it doesn't injure any tissue, the amount of electricity we're using through the chest to stimulate the heart from outside and let it beat is about anywhere between 20 milliamperes to 120 milliamperes. This amount of energy is painful if you have intact sensation, but it's not harmful to tissue, So, so it's you're not, not damaging. It's tissues
1: or not but damaging. But you can feel it. But, you, but we could feel we it. We could feel we it. He's getting it. And, and it would be felt like a pinprick kind of thing? It would be they? felt like a, a stab, like,
2: a uh-huh. like a stab, like a needle. uh
1: like
2: a stab. Yes, it's strong. Yeah. So, what's that measurement again? Noah? Milliampere. Milliampere. That's electric uh, current. Okay. So, um, I mean, there's no harm of doing the external pacemaker in him, but it's not uh, the way to go. Now, we can put a transcutaneous temporary pacemaker if this was not working, but this works fine. The transcutaneous pacemaker is a wire we put into the central vein, goes down to the heart, and would stimulate the heart when needed and pace him, and that would be, as we say, temporary. It's not something permanent. And it is not also a very good solution because you have an open vein, a site of entry, you're inviting bacteria to go in, so usually we don't keep those, except as a bridge for two to three days maximum. You don't want to have any bacteria going into the bloodstream for a hole that we need. So the answer to really this situation is uh, to implant a permanent pacemaker. And the permanent pacemaker is a little battery in the size of a dollar coin. Okay. You make a small incision, and this battery sits in the s- s- tissue under the skin in a little pocket, the pocket of a jacket. And the wire goes in the vein all the way down to the heart and we close. And what it does it monitors his rhythm. If his heart rate is 45, 50, 60 beats a minute, pacemaker shuts doesn't do anything once it detects a pause it paces he won't feel a difference he won't know anything because it will pace in harmony with his heart so different from the external
1: one that actually stimulates him like a stab
2: no yeah this one we're using now 0.5 milliampere very low energy and that's all people walking around with pacemakers and defibrillators use that The question that I get asked, of course, in situations like this, well, is that a permanent need or not? And I kind of said the word permanent, and it's kind of unknown. Uh, I've had patients in the exact same situations that ended up needing it for the rest of their life because they've never recovered the innervation. And we have patients that had recovery, some partial, some full, and those who have partial recovery uses it intermittently Those who had full recovery, the pacemaker was not needed. Stayed in? Stayed in, and it doesn't get used. You can always explant them. Up to one year, it's very easy to explant without a problem. Beyond that, you still can explant them, but it needs a little bit of work, okay? Because
1: Uh, the body begins to do what? Well,
2: after a year, that wire that we put inside the heart gets attached to the blood vessels, so when you try to pull it, You have to pass a sheath around it to cut any adhesions or anything sticking to it and then pull it down. So it's a little bit involved, but it's not a major thing. We do it. Um, But in order for him to go to step two, which is hopefully recovery, uh, rehabilitation, and progress with his care, you can't have him here hostage of a temporary pacer or an external pacer. You have to really deal with this. So... What we're recommending is that we would implant a permanent pacemaker on Monday, okay? Um, Again, they're little batteries in the size of a dollar coin, and we put them right under the skin here. On the left side of his shoulder? Is he
1: right or left-handed? He's right-handed.
2: So yeah, we usually put it on the left side. He has more
1: um, ability at this moment in his left hand. Okay, that wouldn't affect that. Um, Not, I shouldn't say hand, but you know he's able to do his this, mm-hmm. shoulder..
2: Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. there is a very good chance of recovery in situations where you start having at least one part of the body, Uh showing movement so. Uh, and again, if recovery happens within the first year, that could be pulled out completely without a problem. After that, it still can be pulled out. Um, but it it will allow that his care continue at least at this point in Okay. So uh, it's not a major surgery like if somebody is, I mean we do it on the local anesthetic, Uh, it's a small cut, that's implanted here and the the wire goes in the vein all the way down to the heart so we're not opening the chest or anything. Um, Like any surgery, there's always risk of infection or bleeding we do everything as a sterile technique, thank God I didn't have any infections for <laughs> use. Um, the um uh, trying to think of what else could happen with implanting a pacer. Yeah, I mean I I put the, the 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 wires directly into the vein under vision it was what we call a cut down. And um, sometimes you don't have a cephalic vein here to put that wire. So you have to stick the central vein. Um, and when you do that that carries about a one percent chance of having something called pneumothorax, which the needle goes in the lung, the lung collapses and then it later on experience. Had experience with that already. So that's the only risk, but I usually don't do that puncture unless that vein is absent congenitally, which happens in about fifteen percent of people. Okay.
1: So um, I need to consult with
2: my husband about this. Um, I mean, we have time. First of all, he had this fever, so they cultured him again. So far, cultures are negative. His white count is a little up, which may not mean anything, but as long as there's no uh, growth of any organisms in the blood cultures, it's safe to to put the pacer. So we have until Monday for you guys to Think it over, talk it over, get second opinion,
1: do anything you want is fine. Okay. So three things are coming up for me right now. Um, Dr. D'Angelo, who is just here um, with the other members of mm-hmm. the Renda, uh, Dr. Renda and uh, a couple other staff who were here, um, he had said that putting in a pacemaker would be the worst situation of all the things that might be tried right now. Mm-hmm. And we left that consultation maybe a half, 45 minutes ago with um, their wanting to change some archer's medication.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So well, I, I believe he might have been talking
2: about putting a temporary pacemaker. As long as we're able to pace him externally and it's not causing pain because we don't feel it, uh, he maybe he was referring to the temporary pacemaker. That would be the worst situation you really have no way out from the situation that we're in now as far as allowing him to get out of here into recovery, rehabilitation, all these things without having a permanent pacemaker. Again, for the time being, he has an unopposed parasympathetic stimulation to the heart. So he will continuously have pauses. So I see. The
1: tw- so the only the only way out or towards recovery and then rehabilitation and The, I mean, the is
2: only medicine treatment. that can stimulate the heart rate and respiration is dopamine or adrenaline, epinephrine. All these are intravenous medications, and you sort of you have to pick it up, so you can give an injection or give a drip. That I means means somebody is in a unit. And you don't want that. You want no. to stop. Yes, mind you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Um, Again the the uh, I would uh, we call them permanent pacemakers because we do implant them but we've had a lot of patients that the need for the device uh, went away. It saved the situation for weeks or months or whatever and then when time came that things recovered, we can explant it. We have patients that says, Well, why we need to take it out? You say, no, it's another operation to take it out. We can leave it then, the battery will Die over the years and if it's done. It's just there sitting. Um, but all this, I mean, uh, what that would do for you now is is that uh, 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 give him the opportunity to get along with the next step of the hopefully. Mm-hmm. How
1: long does a battery last?
2: Seven to ten years, mm-hmm. and that depends on how much it gets in. Again, the demand pacers, if all this heart rate takes over most of the time, it's only losing it 20%, 30% of the time, that last up to 10 years. Patients who need it really permanently, every 7 to 10 years, we just open the incision, take that pulse generator out, connect the new pulse generator to the same wire that's in place and close. It's done as an outpatient.
1: Mm. Um, and so
2: follow-up for these pacemakers is not complicated. It's done at home through internet we have transmitters that transmit to a monitoring center and it checks the pacemaker maybe once a year he would have to see the cardiologist in the office to have an office evaluation of the device
1: what about uh, i mean i know that people of course have pacemakers and live normal healthy lives what does it mean when you uh for him like like in an airport or things like that do you have to you do special accommodations for pacemakers that they're yes. not set off or other yes. environments that are not Absolutely. good for
2: pacemakers. As far as interacting with anything at home, there's almost nothing that would interact with it. Because years ago, the people were concerned about using microwaves and other equipment. No, nothing interferes with it. Even the cell phone. I wouldn't put the cell phone here next to the pocket, but because it still has magnetic uh, waves but I mean, using a cell phone just talking It's not a problem.
1: Or microwaves um, in a kitchen or other kitchen, kinds of things, oh things oh happening that is not in the a kitchen.
2: Problem. None of that is a problem. The only thing that uh, uh, people with pacemakers should not do is arc welding. Welding? Yeah, when you electric.
1: Because of the vibration? Because of the um, it's and and it's, it's
2: metal, You don't want an arc to <laughs> jump in there. So, uh, when you go to the airport, you will have a card, like a credit card that has its name and identifies that he has a pacemaker so he doesn't go through those uh, uh, checkup the things. They just check him with the wand, because so, it's going to go off you know, every time he passes under this
1: thing. Does, does that cause any pain for the person with the pacemaker?
2: All what uh, the, uh, well, the equipment in airport uh, security detects it so it beeps and it detects it by a magnetic field when the pacemaker is in a magnetic field it goes into what we call a magnet mode meaning it paces all the time and that's only transient because you go through it in less than a second when we test the pacemaker we actually put a magnet on it to see what the rate is that evaluate the battery mm-hmm. so the newer pacemakers now can tell us exactly how much is left in the battery and voltage and all that. So it's not an issue. We don't have to really put that. So when we check it at home, we don't have to put that magnet, but in the past we used to. So it's not like a magnet harms it. It just sets it in a magnet mode. Um, so I mean, people carry on with their life of the normal, really nothing except our purpose. All
1: right. Are there different brands of pacemakers
2: in the United States? We have Medtronic company that manufacture pacemakers, Saint Jude Medical, and Boston Scientific. So Saint Jude Medical. Saint Jude Medical used to be called Pace Setter. Now they're called Saint Jude Medical um, CPI, CPI, which is now used to be, be called Guidant. Now they're Boston Scientific, and.
1: Um, Boston Scientific own CPI. And what was the first? Medtronic. Medtronic with an M? M
2: And EDT.
1: Medtronic.
2: Each one, they're all almost identical. There's no difference. Um, There's a couple of other brands that are actually manufactured in Europe and are approved here. Um, You want something that any cardiologist, anyone could check and interrogate. follow-up for him wherever he goes.
1: What um, has you picking which brand? What is your discernment point? I would use, in his case, what we call the
2: Medtronic MRI, which is a pacemaker that allows him to get MRIs, because this might be one of the tools for following up on his recovery is doing MRIs. So in all other pacemakers, you cannot have an MRI, they're not mri compatible. The MRI is nothing but a huge magnet. And you worry about the magnetic field generating electricity in the wires. So Tronic's MRI device has features in it that are patented by the Tronic company to prevent any interaction with the MRI. So patients who have that kind of pacemaker can go through MRI machines without problem. I think that's the type of device that he
1: should have. -hmm. Are there any other considerations that you would be thinking about now for what kind of decision would be made with with, around equipment, MRI, or if you think about his
2: condition
1: and recovery? I mean, it it has to be
2: intelligently placed uh, in a way that it would allow his heart to perform if it's doing the job on its own, so we make sure it's on demand only. The, there's two wires, actually not one. One goes in the upper chamber and one goes to the lower chamber. So we try to set it in a way that even if he paces, he would pace in the upper chamber only, and not in the lower chamber unless absolutely necessary. Because, because his problem is in the rate from the upper chamber, not in the lower chamber. So his
1: lower chamber is fine. It's fine because it's controlled by the outside.
2: The
1: just the upper chamber that's controlled by what's been. But you have slubbered. to put the wire
2: in the lower chamber just in case, because again, vagal stimulation can block conduction. So
1: it's more there and as like a
2: safety protection. net, but not and as something We don't that will like fire. lower chamber pacing in young people unless it's absolutely necessary. So there are certain features also in the an electronic device, which is called v- Managed Ventricular Pacing. It, it looks for more than one skip beat before it starts pacing. It's giving it a chance for the heart to, to do, use it, it, do it on side. its own. So that's another feature in the tronic that's good for him.
1: Is there, or for those who... Um,
2: you want to sit
0: that? For those who Mm -hmm. uh, have a pacemaker like this,
1: and they're young, Mm -hmm. does it weaken the heart over time when it comes to morbidity rates or heart attacks?
2: Not really. There is indications even in babies, there are some babies that could be born with what we call congenital heart blocks, and they get pacemakers since birth. The only problem, of course, in that age is that you have to use tiny pacemakers, and you have to change it every few years because they grow up fast. Um, The reason why we don't like pacing the lower chamber is that there is a very minute chance, some studies estimated at 2%, some estimated at 10% chance, that pacing uh, the heart in the lower chamber can weaken the heart. Now, um, when people used to implant the pacemakers, they used to put the, the wire in the lower chamber all the way down in the tip of the heart. It's a very secure place. But normally, electricity runs in the heart from top to bottom because electricity generates in the upper chamber and conducts to the heart, to the rest of the heart, this way. So if you put the wire in the tip of the ventricle, the lower chamber, and the electricity comes from here, and now it's going the opposite direction. And that opposite direction of stimulation in few people had shown over time that it can weaken the heart. So what we do to prevent even that slight possibility is, A, program the pacemaker that it paces an upper chamber and not pacing the lower chamber unless absolutely necessary. And Medtronic has an upper hand in terms of that. With the approach. way of programming it. Yeah. And you test that yeah, when you absolutely. have to. Program. And the other thing we do is, instead of putting the tip of the wire at the tip of the heart in the lower chamber, I actually maneuver it so we put it right under the valve, so that when it paces, that electricity will still go downwards in the lower chamber in the normal direction. So doing that is a little bit complicated in in terms of the technique of putting the wire, but that's what we do. We, We put it, instead of the easy place down in the tip, we put it up under the valve. So it's it's uh, you know knowledge we learn over the years. I mean, we've been using pacemakers for, for over 50 years, and things change. How, how many of
1: these have you implanted
2: since 1991? <laughs> uh, many um, thousands? Uh, I don't think thousands. I think maybe uh, between a thousand and two thousand. Average would I'd maybe like in the 80s, sorry, in the 90s, I used to implant every pacemaker here because there was nobody else that's implanting them. I was doing like maybe five a week. Uh, now we have more people that implant and maybe do two uh, or three a month. Yeah, but the frequency of that is Are you the others. surgeon? I'm a cardiologist specialized in arrhythmias. So would you be implanting arteries Yes, I would be implanting, yeah. Um, the follow-up of the device is really not complicated at all. He has to have a cardiologist, of course, that would follow A pediatric course. cardiologist? Yeah. No. Uh, either an electrophysiologist, who's, again, a cardiologist specialist in arrhythmias, or a regular cardiologist that has... Uh, Unnecessary a follow-up equipment to, to follow
1: up the device. So if they if they change up his medication today, um, and we see some improvement, are you still recommending this pacemaker? Uh-uh. I I don't see just something that I, I think they need to be replaced. Yeah, feeding is complete. I just need to tell them that because they don't hear it. Just one moment, if you don't mind. Oh, hi there. Could someone come turn off this buzzer? The feeding is complete. I would appreciate that. Thanks a million.
2: Now, you this, met, is, this is Dr. Alcohol. Mm-hmm. I'm one of the cardiologists and You probably met Dr. Slavin. So came in. He's my associate, one of our associates. Uh, we're Atlantic Care Cardiology Group. And I'm the medical director of that group, but also the specialist in electricity of the heart. Okay? I uh, he was speaking to mom about what's happening with your slow heart rhythm and the fact that in order to get you hopefully through rehabilitation and and, and getting out of this environment eventually and going through the process, uh, in order to make sure that your heart is okay with the rhythm, you will need to have a pacemaker implanted. It's a very small device that we put in the chest right here in this spot. The The left. Right under the skin. And this way, you don't have all these electrical attachments. The other thing, the pacemaker has a monitoring memory in it, so we detect the heart every time we interrogate it. We ask it about the heart rhythm, how many times it got used, and what's going on. Does it need to? You get a lot of information where you can make a decision over time. You need it uh, to continue pacing or to pull it out. So it's really not. something although well again we call it permanent but it doesn't have to be permanent. Okay.
1: Does it matter on which side it is placed on our trip? Well n- n- no. right handed
2: but he's got oh, a lot of technically grip. low because we do, again we put it under the skin. The axis from the left side is the more anatomic in line. The wires you know go in one direction to the heart. And instead of going from here you go this way and then you go this way and then you with uh, okay. less curves and bit bit less curves, so you don't put much strain on the wires again. Anything mm-hmm. that can in the body is landing. The technology of these
0: can you hit the buzzer for us? Yeah, well, I'm gonna, I'll come right over out
2: of here. Thank you. The, the technology of manufacturing these wires evolved significantly over the years, but still, anything the heart is a moving structure, so anything you have in there, it strain. So the more curve in the wire over time can cause problems with insulation or with the actual wire itself. So you want to do it in a physiologic direction, but there's patients who you cannot ever encounter so I mean, in the So you your not put the right side. Rarely would they have a problem, but this is more physiological.
1: Okay? Um, could any of any of this be residual to when his uh, with blood uh, pressure? medicine being given to him through depressors?
2: Um, blood pressure is a little bit more complicated than heart rhythm because blood pressure is a lot of factors in the body that affect it. Some blood pressure medications slow down the heart. Some blood pressure medication reflects that will increase heart rate in people who have intact nervous system. So if I give somebody a blood pressure medication that lowers this blood pressure too much, the heart will detect that and compensate by increasing weight, trying to maintain the pressure from dropping too much. Uh, that might be beneficial, it might be harmful. You know, but it's, it, it, again, in his situation, there's really uh, nothing that can prevent these pauses and slowing the heart rate, except giving the normal adrenaline that comes out of his sympathetic system now is not coming mm-hmm. to the heart. So any time they're swallowing, you have to give him epinephrine, which is either dopamine or dopamine or one of those. You have to give him to You're giving what the heart is lacking. Um, hopefully that will reverse with the remainder of recovery. See. What would
1: you make of... Uh, a situation at the time when his heart was, and he was in incredible uh, distress, going from like 30 to 90, 30 and then back up, and he was just in anguish. Yeah.
2: So when the heart rate was going with the situation at a rate of 90, there was a physiologic need, and his pressure dropped a little bit, then the heart rate compensated for the drop in the blood pressure, or I'm he had a fever. Just some
1: tubing over, okay?
2: So if you had a fever, that can increase the heart rate a little bit. So this fluctuation in the beginning is fine again. What we're facing now is a situation of unopposed parasympathetic uh,
1: stimulation now. I was just um, trying to listen very carefully. I know that when uh, Dr. D'Angelo hasn't been mystified as he hasn't seen us, Mm. where, where this is happening, and we did have a in early on, a situation where his heart was really going from 30 to 90 for probably about two or three hours. Yeah. And again, that could be there's a physiologic
2: need for that fast heart rate, so it's a good sign. No, I know
1: it was because of the blood pressure
2: medication. Well, maybe it's because of the dopamine. I mean, I'll, I'll go and review what they were giving It, him. it
1: would be wise yeah. because it was before he cardiac arrested, mm-hmm. so it was before any dopamine was given to him. And, and just to be very frank, we're, we're seeking answers here. Sure, so sure. I hope that you can bear with me I'll look at, no, no, I'll they, look at they, see what was they, given at that Blood pressure, uh, strong pressure medicine was not ever ordered. and One of the nurses hooked it up for two or three hours. He was in incredible distress and no one could figure out what was going on. So they shot him for fentanyl, which, he, which his body doesn't take very well. and. And then a day and a half later, he cardiac arrested, and now we're here. And it's unusual, but we we're seeking answers. Sure, sure. Just to see. I'll look into that.
2: Sure. The other thing, uh, uh, again, you're, uh, we're going to talk with your husband. Again, we're not doing this today. It's an emergency. It's not an emergency because he has an external pacer that works fine. And again, he does not feel when we're pacing, so don't worry about that probability. Um, so we got to Monday to think about it again. Let me review what happened that day, and uh, we'll yeah. talk again.
1: Okay. Then we do have um, pretty good resources, people whom we know in, in uh, Baltimore at Hopkins and Shock Trauma who are cardiac specialists. Sure. Would you it be have, helpful for you to talk
2: absolutely. to them? Absolutely. I just was uh, in there. new course in February.
1: <laughs> Down in Baltimore? Okay, where were you at Hopkins?
2: Yeah, okay. uh-huh. and I know quite a few of them, but here's my card they can call me anytime. That would be great. Let me write my cell phone number yeah. also if you guys want to reach me instead of going through the service. Perfect. Go by Mohammed. Actually, my name is Muhammad Hani. It's the first name. Sometimes I'm from Egypt originally, but it's, it's sometimes you're given two first names. So my, name, that, we're not, we're that but my name is Muhammad. Actually, they wanted to name me Hani, but they also like to put Muhammad in everybody. Yes. <laughs> so this is Muhammad Hani. So here I have to go by Mohammed because that's the first name in yeah. order, but everybody that's close to me calls me Hanny. So how do you spell Hanny? H-A-N-Y. H-A-N-Y. Yeah. Very nice. Okay,
1: okay. okay. thank you very much. Oh, Welcome. Welcome. I'm not we here today. He's up in i to pick up. the Now, I
2: have a question about the last name. How come there's only one vowel? Yes. Explain that to me. Well, it's
1: Dutch, and it literally means the mustard seed. Mustard seed. Yeah, okay, so, so how do you pronounce it? Well, if you were over in, in Europe, and mm-hmm. it used to be in Germany, it would have been zemp. Zemp. And then in, in Deutschland and the Netherlands, they added T, you know, like hundreds or thousands of years ago, so it became Zemt, but mm-hmm. here in the U.S. we used to say sent. like they sending away sempt. bad things. Sempt. Sempt.
2: Yeah, i since I came to the United States in 1983, so I've been struggling with the name Omaha since then. <laughs> uh, and actually, uh, Dr. Alcohol was given to me by one of my patients, so <laughs>
1: I just decided that's
2: something. It is amazing
1: because you think alcohol, versus an L and an ethanol follows easily. So send. send oh, it. Dr. Omaha.
2: Dr. Okay. So uh, uh, tomorrow we'll stop by again and talk about it. I'll look into these incidences that you just spoke of and yeah. see what happened exactly the other day. Okay? okay.
1: That would be helpful. Um, and then tomorrow we've asked for a family um, meeting with Dr. Talici, He's here, um, and we don't. We're at any time, it's fine for us, but all of our children will be here.
2: And if you have anybody from his physician or from Baltimore that wants to call me, they can call me directly. Thank okay. you. On my cell phone instead of going through the service. Yes, I will, I will do that. You probably will be there. Because hearing we have two someone. cardiologists on. The other one is in the mainland hospital. And then, like, he's on call tonight and at night. So they might get him. So you just call me through the cell
1: phone, okay? Yeah, thank you All so right. much. Thank you. Appreciate thank you.
2: it. You know, he had an echo earlier. And Dr. Uh, Slaven read it. I looked at it again this morning. His heart structure is completely Okay, thank you.
1: Right. <laughs> Hanny, as I came to call Dr. Elma Hall, and I connected, not just on a level for Archer's care, and not just so that he knew Archer but person to person, human to human. I loved learning about his Egyptian background and what it must have been like as a Mohammed in the United States. I felt a bridge of trust being built with him as we shared the origin or meaning of our names. What meant the most to me though, was that as I sought answers and he provided thoughtful information, he was knowledgeable and experienced. I felt he cared about Archer. I also was very aware and very touched by how open he remained. It seemed that as I got clearer with information he shared, he got clearer with questions I asked, as we together thought things through about if this really was the right surgery, and why, and why medication was not a good long-term solution, and which side of Archer's body would be best, and what if he got an impulse back in his left hand, and which brand of pacemaker would be most desirable for Archer's particular needs. Those details mattered and it made for a better outcome for all of us. Oh, Henny was knowledgeable all right, but I really loved that he knew he didn't know it all. That may surprise many doctors that a patient or a patient's family member would feel this way, but it actually built my confidence when Dr. Elnahal was open to being connected to other cardiac surgeons at other institutions, and when he told me he had just taken a continuing education course at Johns Hopkins, even after over 30 years as a heart surgeon and electricity specialist. He was a lifelong learner, I could tell. Those were the people I wanted on Archer's team. I was flooded with gratitude for his attitude. It was a combination of competence tempered by humility. I don't know if it was the right decision, but at least it felt like we were doing the best we could together. But you know what else about Dr. Elnahal? I liked his view about dopamine that it was not a long-term solution and that too much or too long could be unhealthy for Archer and unhealthy for anyone. As you already know, he also gave me a cell phone number for direct access to bypass the barriers. He was real. These to me were the ways of care Relational medicine, you know what I mean? It increased my confidence and even made me hopeful. I wonder if it would have done the same for you. Yes, it was hard to be where we were and my heart was still broken about Archer, but I felt like we were in this together. I believed that when I would see him again the next day at our meeting with all the doctors, he would bring back a thoughtful report about the impact of that blood pressure medical error and our moving forward with the pacemaker. I wanted to leave no stone unturned, but I may have, as I only knew to keep asking, and my list of questions may not have been exhaustive, but I had no desire to derail or point fingers i just wanted what was best for archer bringing people together talking things through together and asking a lot of questions was the path forward we had to get archer closer to his next step of recovery rehab i was also a little haunted by what dr elna hall said about some super tiny percentage, like 1% of pacemaker candidates can get pneumothorax. But he told me not to be concerned because Archer's cultures look good. But there was that creeping white blood cell count. I don't know. The last time a doctor discounted something almost impossible from happening was Dr. Radcliffe and it did happen. Pneumonia and Archer's lungs. I was still going to be asking questions tomorrow. Whatever it is in your life that you are seeking and looking to figure out, or that is keeping you hostage, keep seeking. Stay curious even if you are scared of the answer. Keep asking. The answers will strengthen you no matter what they are. And if they do not feel right, ask again. There are many ways to ask. And don't forget to listen. I think God wants us to keep seeking. And to keep seeking Him. Divine presence in our discernment in our decision-making, seeking Him especially when we're not getting answers from humans, that's the way to go. Because there's nothing God will not answer. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Life is so precious. Sending love. Hope for everything. Obtain everything. Thank you for tuning in to the Blink of an Eye story. You may continue listening this Saturday to the trauma healing learnings that accompany this story at Trauma Healing Learning, Seeking Answers. Thank you for listening and telling your friends. Together, we are raising the vibration for healing.
0: You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Listen on our website, blinkofanyepodcast.com or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is sponsored by Baltimore Mediation. For 28 years, Baltimore Mediation has served clients worldwide by facilitating negotiation breakthroughs, believing in their capacity for meaningful face-to-face dialogue. You can learn more at BaltimoreMediation.com.